you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. accounts, the winter of 1854 to 1855 was an especially harsh one in the southwestern county of Devon, as it apparently was everywhere else in England as well. It's said that the River X and the River Tane froze over, and fairs were held out on the ice, much as they had formerly been on the Thames in London. On the night of February 7th, temperatures dropped considerably, and beginning in the early morning hours of February 8th, a heavy snow began to fall. Some sources say that as as the night progressed, it began to warm somewhat and turn to rain, changing back to snow nearer morning. A few days later, on February 13th, a relatively brief notice appeared in the Western Luminary, a newspaper for several southwestern counties. Since the recent snowstorms, Some animal has left marks on the snow that have driven a great many inhabitants from their propriety and caused an uproar of commotion among the inhabitants in general. The markings, to say the least about them, are very singular. The footprint, if footprint it be, is about three inches long by two inches wide, exactly in shape like a donkey's hoof. The length of the stride is evidently about a foot apart, very regular, and is evidently done by some two-footed animal. What renders the matter more difficult of solution is that gardens with walls 12 feet high have been trodden over without any damage having been done to shrubs and walks. The animal must evidently have jumped over the walls. It has also left marks all over the churchyard and between the graves. Many parties have traced the prints for miles, but as yet, without any solution to the mystery. Several of the very superstitious draw long faces and say it must be the marks of old blank. Others conjecture that it must be some monkey which has escaped a traveling menagerie with something on its feet, but all wish the enigma unravel. This was the first reference to what were later referred to as the devil's footprints. Though the Western Luminary account focused on the tracks as they appeared in the town of Dawlish, a London Times article a few days later reported that the tracks were found not just there, but that they proceeded in a line through several towns. Topsom, Limpstone, Exmouth, Tainmouth, and Dawlish among them. There was hardly a garden in Limpstone where the tracks were not observable, the article went on. A later account appearing in Woolmer's Exeter and Plymouth Gazette added Littleham, Woodbury, and Starcross 
to the list of towns through which the trail led. Compiling all accounts makes it clear that the trackway began in Totneys in the south and proceeded in a jagged line northward, crossing the exit Starcross and then making a broad turn back to Exmouth. Soon afterward, with the publication of a letter and a drawing of the tracks by a person signing themselves South Devon, later found to be one William D. Urban, later curator of a natural history museum, there was a series of exchanges in the Illustrated London News about the mysterious trackways. Several of these were written by Reverend G.M. Musgrave, the vicar of Withycombe Raleigh, who was mentioned in the Times article as having put forth the idea that the tracks had been those of a kangaroo. He said in one of his missives that, Laborers, their wives and children, and old crones, and trembling old men, dreading to stir out after sunset, or to go half a mile into lanes or byways on a call or a message, under the conviction that this was the devil's walk, and no other, and that it was wicked to trifle with such a manifest proof of the great enemy's immediate presence. Finally, at the tail end of the correspondences, the affair was, at least in the minds of many, put to rest on March 3rd when noted zoologist Richard Owen declared that a sketch he had been sent of some of the tracks left at Dawlish was that of a badger. This is almost the only plantigrade mammal we have in this island, and leaves a footprint larger than would be supposed from its size, Owen said. Most drawings of the marks, he said, were generally accurate, but without the indications of the pad on the sole and the five small claws, those of the fore and hind foot are commonly more or less blended together, producing the appearance of a line of single footsteps. Naturalist Frank Buckland said that the tracks were absolutely proven to be those of a raccoon, despite the fact that raccoons are not even native to England. Besides which, their tracks are obviously most reminiscent of small human hands, not at all like what were found in Devon. The exchanges in the Illustrated London News continued, with people speculating as to different animals that the tracks may have been of. Calling the mysterious tracks asinine shoe prints, Someone signing himself Ornither said that in his opinion, the tracks were those of a great bustard. The two outer toes and the upper rounded end, the cushioned junction of the toes at the heel end. I saw marks of this sort on Saturday, the 24th instant, after the commencement of the thaw on Friday, and do not doubt of their being such as I have named. A correspondent writing to Truman's Exeter Flying Post, a Jabez Allies, agreed with Ornither that the prints were most likely those of a bird, although a wading bird like a heron or crane in his opinion. The tracks of wading birds tend to display all three toes, as well as the hind claw. The shallowness of the snow is a sufficient reason why the impression of the fourth or hind toe was not made. And with respect to web-footed birds, their hind toe is very small. The probability is that some waders were frozen out by the severity of the weather from the shores of the rivers or estuaries of the sea, and that they ran over South Devon in the night of the 8th Automo in search of food, and afterwards mounted aloft, as cranes do, before the dawn of the day. Indeed, Reverend Musgrave's sketches of the marks do have a sort of point on what was at least assumed to be the front of the hoof, though if this theory is correct, that was actually the heel of the foot. And Reverend Musgrave himself does say that at least two large cranes were seen in the area of the trackways. 
In another of Reverend Musgrave's letters, he described the tracks and his observances of them, writing, As an amateur accustomed to make the most accurate drawings from nature, I set to work soon after those marks appeared and completed the accompanying exact facsimile of those that were visible on the lawn of our clergyman's garden in this parish. He and I traced them through a low privet hedge, by a circular opening of one foot diameter. On applying a rule, the interval between each impression was found to be undeviatingly eight and a half inches. This, in my opinion, is one of the most remarkable and confounding circumstances we have to deal with. The tracks allegedly continued for nearly a hundred miles in a circuitous route across Devon. Other accounts vary as to the length of the pathway, however. But as Rupert T. Gould con- concludes in his write-up of the Devil's Footprints in his 1928 book Oddities, even if we reduce its length to a minimal of 40 miles only, the application of simple arithmetic is still fatal to the hypothesis of a single creature. Allowing this 14 hours of darkness in which to make a 40-mile line of hoof marks 8 inches apart, it must have kept up an average of more than 6 steps per second from start to finish. And that is the absolute minimum. An addition of 30% for loopings and turnings, which seems reasonable enough, would necessitate the creatures taking 10 steps per second for 14 hours continuously. Therefore, he concludes, and quite rightly too, in my opinion, that the notion of the tracks having been made by a single animal, whatever animal whatever animal it may have been, is plainly ludicrous. This is backed up also by an examination of the different sketches of the footprints, since some seem pretty clearly to be of a different character than what is usually seen. Another interesting point made by Golden Oddities is that the tracks were never particularly far from water whether it be the coast or the River X. This could be seen as lending some credence to the theory of Jabez allies that they were the tracks of some sort of water-dwelling bird. There were two major oddities about the tracks. That of their widespread nature, being found all through the streets of towns, inside walled gardens, and the track maker even seemingly traveled through a foot-high gap in a hedgerow as described in the last quoted letter by Reverend Musgrave. He also described how he traced the same prints across a field up to a haystack. The surface of the stack was wholly free of marks of any kind, but on the opposite side of the stack, in a direction exactly corresponding with the track thus traced, the prints began again. In an 1890 article on Notes and Queries, R.H. Buss quotes a letter by a Tavistock resident named E. Spencer, who said that at his mother's home in Exmouth, He had seen tracks in her garden. After reaching the gate of the garden, which was of close wood, they continued in the road outside. He also said that the same tracks were found on the flat tops of some buildings and on that of a church tower. They were said to have appeared on a second-story windowsill or to pass through a six-inch drainpipe. The hoof prints were found in these sorts of seemingly impossible places, which, Barring any supernatural explanation, would seem to suggest either a bird or some kind of climbing animal was a culprit. The other major oddity about the tracks would seem to be that there was only a single line of hoof marks. But in that regard, as Theo Brown wrote in 1950 in the Transactions of the Devonshire Association, as to South Devon's point about the footsteps being in a single line 
which has given rise to so much excitement, and which has been quoted again and again, I would like to say that this is the only contemporary account I have met with that makes any such claim. Woolmer's Gazette says the steps are generally 8 inches in advance of each other, but sometimes 12 or 14 inches, and are alternate of each other like the steps of a man, and will be included between two parallel lines 6 inches apart. So one of the most well-known and explicable features of the case, the single row of tracks, may not have even been the case, and they, have, they may have been staggered as one would expect from any normal animal. The hoof marks and I use that term in quotes, seem also to have been far more irregular than usually made out. They seem to have been of different sizes at different places, and likewise the distance between tracks seems to have varied. Even the idea of a continuous trackway was overblown. It is said that it had stopped several times and then resumed quite a distance away. Some individuals saw what appeared to be traces of claws around the edges of the tracks, and some saw what appeared to be the marks made by some animal with padded feet, like those of a dog or cat. Another commentator on the mysterious tracks was another clergyman, H.T. Ellicombe, the vicar of Clist St. George. Ellicombe said that at some spots along the trail, he saw disturbances of snow around the edges of the track, as if a bird had been flapping its wings. But the mysterious tracks found in Devon are not the only instance of seemingly inexplicable footprints having been found. In R.H. Busk's 1890 article, he quotes a man named Christopher Foddard, who writes, No allusion has as yet been made to the mysterious footprints having extended to Dorsetshire. We were at Weymouth at the time, at Gordon Place on the Green Hill. I remember a creepy feeling on seeing the hoofprints in the snow, which passed from Green Hill over the high wall of her garden. I have a very distinct recollection. It was like the cloven hoof of a calf, one in front of the other. I remember also the theory of their having been caused by a badger. But be it bird or beast, 
Why should these marks have simultaneously appeared over so wide an area and never been observed before or since? He also quotes a man named G.E. Garvey, who said that he saw similar tracks in Lincolnshire. In an item appearing in the Nottinghamshire Guardian for March 1, 1855, reports another appearance of similar tracks near the town of Hucknall. On Sunday morning, about 7 o'clock, some very singular footprints were observed near the station in the snow that had fallen in the night. They were in the shape of a donkey's foot, but were not cloven and were about 9 inches apart. Many people went to see them. They were traced in different directions. The Inverness Courier for the same day reported that mysterious tracks had been found near Abertarf House, just off the River Ness in the center of town. These tracks, however, were assumed to be those of a rabbit, which had traversed the field at a gallop with its feet close together. The paws had become slightly filled with snow, so that only the round form was impressed, and the open space between them left a slightly raised and pointed mark like the center of a cloven hoof. On March 14, 1840, quoting an article appearing in the Scottish Perth Courier, the London Times reported on the discovery of some mysterious footprints in a mountainous area of Perthshire in Scotland. Among the high mountains of that elevated district where Glen Erkey, Glen Lyon, and Glen Locay are contiguous, there have been met with several times during this and also the former winter upon the snow, the tracks of an animal seemingly unknown at present in Scotland. The print, in every respect, is an exact res resemblance to that of a foal of considerable size, with this small difference, perhaps, that the sole seems a little longer, or not so round. But as no one has had the good fortune as yet to have obtained a glimpse of this creature, nothing more can be said of its shape or dimensions. Only it has been remarked, from the depth to which the feet sank in the snow, that it must be a beast of considerable size. It has been observed also that its walk is not like a, that of the generality of quadrupeds, but that it is more like a, the bounding or leaping of a hare when scared or pursued. It is not in one locality that its tracks have been met with, but through a range of at least 12 miles. A place called Glen Keltney is located in another mountainous region, just north of the one which, in which these tracks were found, and just to the east is Loch Tay. Both of these places as well as a pond near this town of Aberfeldy, have associated water horse or kelpie legends. Sir James Ross, anchored at Kerguelen Island in the southern Indian Ocean in May of 1840, saw similar footprints leading across the snow. He described the event as follows. Of land animals we saw none, and the only traces we could discover of there being any on the, on the island were the singular footsteps of a pony or ass, found by the party det detached for surveying purposes under the command of Lieutenant Byrd and described by Dr. Robertson as being three inches in length and two and a half in breadth, having a small and deeper depression on each side and shaped like a horseshoe. In 1852 or 1853, similar tracks appeared in the Cotswolds, and during the illustrated London news exchanges following the discovery of the tracks in Devon, an instance of their having appeared in Eastern Europe was also mentioned. On the Piaschowa Gora, or Sand Hill, a small hill on the borders of Galicia, but in Russian Poland, 
Every year are to be seen in the snow the same footprints as those seen in Devonshire, in a single line round the hill, at a few inches and regular distance from each other. No mark of a beginning or end being distinguished. It is universally attributed by the inhabitants to supernatural influence. The same footprints are occasionally visible in the soft sand with which this bare hill is covered. Of course, hoof-like tracks are noted to have appeared all around New Jersey and Pennsylvania during the spate of Jersey Devil sightings in January of 1909, often in impossible places, like the Devon tracks were, on roofs and the like. In an article appearing in Doubt in 1946, writer Eric Frank Russell describes some tracks he saw while serving in World War II. They were spotted on a snow-covered hill behind the Chateau de Morveau, near Everberg, which is partway between Brussels and Louvain, Belgium, at 10 p.m. on January 10, 1945. The snow varied from 2 to 4 feet in depth, and I traced the prints for half a mile in a northwesterly direction until they entered a tiny wood, or copse, where they abruptly disappeared. Finally, a woman named Linda Hansen, who lived in Hall as a child, reported some similar tracks she had seen in her garden as a child, probably sometime around 1950. The prints were some four inches across, shaped as a cloven hoof, and appeared twelve inches apart in a single line, stopping in the middle of the garden. As to the identity of what, is, what may have made the tracks, virtually every sort of animal native to the British Isles has been suggested at one time or another. Badgers were suggested by Richard Owen, and raccoons by Frank Buckland, though that suggestion, especially, is ludicrous. Foxes, otters, birds of all sorts, cats, and kangaroos have also been suggested, and early on, monkeys with shoes were suggested. And stranger than science, the, al the always unreliable Frank Edwards connects the Devon tracks completely unnecessarily, I might add, to the Canvey Island monsters, the dead creatures discovered on the beach near London in the 1950s. Geoffrey Household suggested that the tracks might have been made by a derelict hot air balloon dragging a piece of metal at the end of a mooring line. And in February of 1983, Two men in communication with the Daily Mirror suggested that the tracks were made by a band of stilt-wearing Romany and were meant to frighten other traveler bands away from their quote-unquote territory. Scottish mountaineer J. Allen Rennie suggests that the tracks were the result of a natural phenomenon in which condensation, coming into contact with warm air, leaves marks on the snow. He claims to have seen these markings in several places, northern Canada and the Scottish Highlands among them. While condensation on the snow sometimes does cause the surface of the snow to become pitted, I'm not certain if anyone except Rennie has ever actually seen these tracks be created, and the ones he saw seem to be of a size far greater than the Devon tracks. It seems fairly obvious that the tracks, whatever they were, were distorted by the cycle of thawing and refreezing. A correspondent to Woolmer's Exeter and Plymouth Gazette wrote of the night in question, I observed the impressions of my horse's foot on, made on the same night, and found they measured more than six inches across, whereas the real measurement of the foot was four and a half. I think it therefore difficult to arrive at the precise size of the animal's foot, which would, doubtless, 
be influenced by the same cause. In my opinion, most likely of all possible identifications is that of a squirrel, rabbit, rat, or some other small rodent. These sorts of animals generally rest with their two front feet forward and their larger rear feet slightly outward in an arch-like configuration. That when distorted by a slight thaw and the delineation between the feet blurred could look very hoof-like. Some of the other more impossible places the footprints were found could also be explained further if it were something like a squirrel or to a lesser extent a rat, both of which have the ability to climb and for example, possibly surmount a wall. Whatever the source of the tracks, I think it's important to remember that, as Rupert T. Gould pointed out, the possibility of any one individual animal making all the tracks is quite impossible. And that's assuming the source is even animal at all. The idea put forth by J. Allen Rennie of a possibly natural origin is an interesting one. I have noticed while, I've noticed while putting together the reports that all instances of tracks, Devon and otherwise, appeared in the snow. If there's any possibility of some sort of natural origin, I have to conclude that the snowy and wintry conditions are in some way vital to their formation. The Devil's Footprints, which appeared in southern England on that winter's day in 1855, are as much a mystery today as they were 170 years ago, and a mystery they very well may remain. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see me cover, leave a comment on the podcast page, post to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. There's also links to all these pages in the show description as well. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.